0: All right, we are in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We're in chapter 5. We're going to look at chapter 5, all of it, verses 1 through 14. That's our text. So please navigate there on your device or open your Bible. If you're using a tablet or a phone, you might want to put that on mute just so you won't be embarrassed out of your mind when (laughs) it goes off. My iPad rang a couple of weeks ago. I had a telephone call, so it's my dentist, if you recall. I think I've solved that problem chapter 5 verses 1 through 14 the topic the call goes out in heaven for the only one worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of God and finish history as it is pre-written the title of our message scroll call let's have a word of prayer father this morning as we sit under the teaching of your word we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit he is a teacher, but he's also a comforter. And so we pray, Lord, that in all of the roles that he has in our life, he would, uh, we would yield to him and that we would understand your love for us, your grace in our lives, that we would receive mercy. <clears throat> that this text, Lord, uh, so powerful, so meaningful, would transform us to be about the business of the kingdom. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed, said amen. Sleepless in Seattle poked a lot of fun at you gals for crying all the time while watching movies. It happened when Tom Hanks' character, Sam Baldwin, turned and said to his friend, I cried at the end of the Dirty Dozen. They went on to have a long, very sarcastic conversation about how emotional they supposedly got over the various deaths that were portrayed in that film it's it's a classic scene and by the way it was all improvised i read uh, so uh, those of you who are fans of sleepless in seattle it's a good piece of trivia maybe you're that kind of a guy a guy who doesn't cry Well, what about the beginning of pixar's movie up if you haven't seen it i'm gonna spoil it for you uh, it's a it's about a kid named carl who falls in love with a little neighborhood tomboy girl ellie the first few minutes shows how they go on these make-believe adventures together, and they start saving money for a real trip to a place called Paradise Falls. They marry, and as they age, life always gets in the way of their trip. They use the money they've set aside for house repairs and car repairs and other everyday stuff. It, you can relate to that, and that's what they're hoping for. Throughout this montage of their life, flashing before our eyes, shows how happy and in love they were, frolicking up hills together. It also shows this insanely sad stuff, like how Ellie couldn't have children. And then out of nowhere, Ellie gets a terminal illness. She can't climb up those hills anymore without Carl carrying her. And then she dies, leaving Carl a bitter old man and leaving you wondering if this is really a Disney movie. (laughs) If you didn't cry at some point in those first ten minutes, you've probably been taken over by aliens. I'm crying more than usual some of it's appropriate but Pam will lean over to me watching television and she say are you crying luckily it's allergy <laughs> luckily it's allergy season is it a lie if i say no? but i tell you what when that little gecko is on the deck and he has to f- walk that far you know that that's just one of those moments those geico commercials will really get you <laughs> Whether you're a crier or not, weeping is appropriate an awful lot of the time here on planet Earth, too often. Maybe that's why one of the things that really jumps out at us in Revelation 5 is John's weeping and his being told to stop, and his weeping giving way to worship. Isn't that something that we would long for? For our weeping to always give way to worship. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the current era of weeping will end when you see Jesus take the scroll. And number two, the coming era of worship will begin when you see Jesus take the scroll. Let's look in verses one through seven first and talk about weeping. What I'm calling the current era of weeping was inaugurated when Adam and Eve sinned, bringing decay and disaster and death into the world that God had created. Their tempter, Satan, became the God of this world, the ruler of this world, and the prince of the power of the air. Since the devil is a liar and a thief and a murderer, the havoc he causes leads to almost unimaginable pain and suffering represented by weeping. Now, as we follow John into heaven, he will weep uncontrollably, but it will, in one sense, represent the end of weeping as we know it on account of what occurs next. And so verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. You remember from chapter 4, John had been transported to heaven and to the future. The tribulation is just about to break upon the earth as a storm. He saw God on his throne, and next his attention is drawn to a seven-sealed, double-sided scroll that's in God's right hand. What is this scroll? There are a lot of suggestions, but only two likely options. The first, very popular, is that the scroll is the title deed to planet Earth. The thinking here is that Adam, who was given dominion over the Earth by God, forfeited his rights to the planet when he sinned. But Jesus came to reclaim what was lost. God has been holding the deed, waiting for the Redeemer to step forth. There is some support for this in Jeremiah chapter 32, which describes Jewish title deeds as sealed scrolls, and it talks about forfeited land being properly redeemed at the right time. Now, the second option is that this scroll is the future history of the earth and of mankind written in advance, and that God is holding it waiting for a particular moment in history. In fact, beginning with chapter 6, the seals are opened in order and they reveal the future history of the earth, the tribulation, followed by the second coming of Jesus to establish his 1,000-year kingdom of heaven on the earth. It's a little of both, is it not? We see the pre-written future as the seals are opened and they lead inevitably to the Lord totally reclaiming and redeeming what had been forfeited by Adam. Verse 2, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. God's law given to Israel specified that land could only be redeemed by a certain person. This person was called in Hebrew a goel. The translation into English is kinsman redeemer. He had to be a blood relative, he had to be kin, who was willing to act as the redeemer and who was both willing and able to meet the conditions necessary to redeem the property. If this land we are talking about is the earth itself, then the kinsman redeemer must meet the following minimum conditions. Number one, he would have to be a kinsman to Adam. Since it is mankind's rights to the earth that were forfeited by Adam, Only a relative of Adam's could be the Redeemer. In plain language, the Redeemer would have to be a human being. But he would also have to be God, because Adam forfeited more than real estate. The souls of lost men and women have been forfeited, and they are included in the estate to be redeemed. No mere man who was born a sinner could ever qualify to be the kinsman Redeemer unless he was also God, born without sin and having lived a perfect sinless life. Then this person who was both God and man would have to fulfill the obligations that fell to the forfeiter. In the case of Adam, his obligation in order to redeem the land was to die. Thus, Adam's kinsman redeemer would have to offer himself willingly as a sacrifice and die in his place. And so in order to be the goel, the kinsman redeemer, you would have to be a God-man who willingly died in place of the human race. Sound like anybody we know? When the angel cries, who is worthy, he isn't taking applications. It's not a job posting. They're not really looking for anyone else. He's announcing in a dramatic way that no one is worthy but one, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 4, it says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. No one came forward immediately. You're familiar with what writers and directors call the dramatic pause. It's when a character waits to respond, giving the scene an even greater effect. God subjected John to the mother of all dramatic pauses here. This moment comes when the angel says, Who is worthy to take the scroll? And there's this long pause and John can't take it anymore. He starts weeping uncontrollably. Speculation on my part, just thinking about this scene in heaven, Until that scroll is taken from the hand of the Father and the seals are broken and the tribulation begins and Jesus returns. Until that time, unbelievable, unimaginable suffering has and is taking place on planet Earth. Every second that this scene is delayed from our point of view, how many millions of people are suffering in some (coughs) terrible way that, that we can't even fathom? our own suffering, and the suffering of, of most of the world. If you want to cry about something, that's something to cry about, and to realize that it's going to be that way until Jesus steps forward and, and deals with the history of the world. And we've told you many times, that well, why doesn't God act? Why doesn't he do this now? We learn from the Apostle Peter that God's long-suffering waits. He waits for sinners to come to Christ, because... Even the multiplied millions and millions of people suffering now on the earth in horrible, horrendous ways can never even start to be compared to one soul that is lost for eternity in hell. And so God in his long suffering, he waits. Sometimes people say, well, where is God when it hurts or why is God allowing that? And and you don't want to be sarcastic or mean about it, but the real answer sometimes is it's your fault because God is waiting for you to get saved. He doesn't want you to be lost for eternity. And so all the things that are happening, in one sense, they fall on each of our shoulders. Uh, And and it's a very interesting perspective. And so John, he just can't take it. And he's weeping uncontrollably. It gives us time to reflect on the uniqueness of our Savior and to realize, once again, that no one can save apart from Jesus Christ. In in one sense, this, as I said, it's not really a search. but, But if it were a search... And you could bring all the supposed great philosophers and religious leaders before this throne in heaven, who else would qualify? I mean, seriously. I mean, think about it before you were a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, somebody that you think is really the cat's meow when it comes to philosophy or religion, what are they gonna do before the throne of God except represent themselves as hell doomed sinners? Only Jesus Christ, the God man, God come in human flesh, who died. In place of every human being who was lifted up on the cross that all might be saved, only he qualifies. But one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now we explain in chapter 4 why we believe the elders are the church, resurrected and raptured, safe in heaven, prior to the opening of the seals and to the tribulation. I'm going to give you another solid proof they represent the church a little bit later in this chapter. The elder tells John to stop weeping by pointing him to Jesus, whom he describes by two impressive titles. He calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. These draw from prophecies in the Old Testament, and uh, as, as we've told you before, There are so many allusions to and quotes from and references to the Old Testament in the book of the Revelation, maybe 800 or more. Uh, And so if you've read the Old Testament, especially if a a, a Jew would immediately recognize some of these things. Uh, He calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's from Genesis chapter 49, where the Jews are told their Messiah would come from that tribe. And then Isaiah In chapter 11, verse 1, said that the Messiah would be the root of David. And so uh, these are Old Testament images that are uh, coming true. Now, root can mean descendant, but later in the Revelation, in chapter 22, we learn Jesus is both the root and the offspring of David, meaning he is both the ancestor and the descendant of David. How can somebody be an ancestor and a descendant at the same time? Well, only if he were God who became man only if he preceded David because he was eternal and also descended from David in his humanity. And so this is the person, the God, man, Jesus Christ. John was told to stop weeping because there was one who had prevailed. Oh, how he has prevailed. He came from heaven to earth in humiliation as God in human flesh. He overcame the trials of human life. He overcame the temptations in the wilderness, the agonies of the Garden of Gethsemane. He overcame shame at the cross of Calvary. He prevailed over the grave and rose from the dead. He descended into the lower parts of the earth so that when he ascended to heaven, he led with him those who through the centuries had believed in his coming. Jesus has prevailed. And I like this. As a devotional study, you could look at John being told to quit weeping. People who are in extreme grief and sad situations who've just gotten maybe the worst news of their life, I don't recommend that you tell them to stop crying. It's just not a good idea. Over the years, I've realized what a privilege it is to be with people who are at some of the most difficult crossroads of their life. It's a huge privilege, and it's a privilege that you don't want to ruin. Uh, as a chaplain, oftentimes I'll get called out to a scene where there's been a tragedy, the Officers will ask the individuals, Would you like to speak with one of our chaplains? And they almost always say yes, even though 50% of the time they mean no. Uh, and, and you know why they mean no? Because they don't really want to talk to a stranger. Uh, it, when you're experiencing super grief, the last thing you want is platitudes from a stranger. And so I'm, I'm always cognizant of people not really wanting me to be around when they say things like thank you for coming and they open the door you know that's it's kind of obvious uh... but what i've learned over the years is is that there are other people people you are close to or uh... that are friends of yours or whatnot and they they invite you into their suffering they want you there when they're suffering but you don't always have to say anything you don't have the answers you need to go into these situations knowing you don't have the answer you know the answer It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. You need to do whatever you can to represent Christ to them and to let them know that Jesus loves them and those kinds of things. But you don't have to have answers. And and you shouldn't say things that are just stupid. You shouldn't use cliches um, and, and that kind of a thing. Consider it a privilege and an honor and a blessing. Weep with them and just do your best to represent Jesus Christ. Verse 6, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The lion John expected to see turned out to be a lamb. Jesus is referred to as the lion only once in Revelation. He's referred to as the lamb about 29 times, so it's an incredibly important title and description. Whenever I encountered the term lamb, I can't help but think of the theme of the lamb running all through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. After Adam and Eve sinned, God clothed them with the skins of animals. He didn't get them from Forever 21. Those skins came from animals who were sacrificed on their behalf. It was a vivid illustration that the wages of sin is death. God had told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die And then he said, this animal, these animals can die in your place. And, and, you know, you can't think of Adam and Eve as as a couple that grew up on the farm. Uh, They they were in this garden that God had given them, this beautiful garden. They named the animals. They hung out with animals. As we'll see even later in this chapter, animals might have even talked to them. Who knows? But they were vegetarians, and nothing had ever died. They didn't have any idea what death meant. And then God comes into the garden... And he says, essentially, he says to them, I can solve this problem, but it's going to require me coming to earth and dying in your place to defeat the devil and sin and death. In the meantime, I can temporarily cover over your sin, and here's how it's going to work. And he brings in animals, and he slaughters them in front of them. And this would have been, I have to guess, pretty terrifying to Adam and Eve to see the consequences of their sin now we can't be certain but i suggest those animals were lambs one reason to think they were lambs is that adam and eve taught their sons about sacrifice and when you see abel sacrificing he brought a lamb the patriarchs continued the practice then you see a massive sacrifice of lambs at the exodus of the jews from egypt when god instituted the first passover estimates vary but there were several million people in the exodus making a ton of households within which lambs were sacrificed. Every household had to sacrifice its own lamb. There wasn't just one lamb for everybody. And so who knows how many lambs were sacrificed that one night. It was an animal activist's worst nightmare. Fast forward many centuries and many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lambs slain in the tabernacle, then in the temple. And John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ, his cousin Jesus, walking to be baptized, and he steps back and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you were a Jew, you would think, this is that person promised in Genesis for whom every lamb substituted, for whom every lamb represented. This is the person who can be sacrificed for my sin once and for all. Now, I don't know how many people would have really understood that, but that is what was going on. He meant to convey that Jesus was the final fulfillment of what had begun in the garden, the substitute, the sacrifice for sin that every previous sacrificial animal symbolized. As we are fond of reminding you, Jesus died on the cross Just at the very moment, the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple, just so he would totally fulfill the symbolism of Passover. It says here, as though it had been slain, to remind you that Jesus bears in his eternal glorified body the marks of his crucifixion. After the Lord rose from the dead, he showed the nail prints to his disciples, and again later when Thomas was with them. In the book of Zechariah, we see that Israel is going to recognize Jesus by those wounds when he returns at his second coming. Why the scars? So important is the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ in the sight of God that he is forever represented in that way. Now, some people want to follow the teachings of Jesus as a great philosopher or a great religious leader. They like the red letters, they say. The Bible, your regular old cloth Bible that you who are really spiritual still carry. you can get the red letter edition and all the words of Christ are in red. And so a lot of people, to be uh, kind of edgy, they say, well, I, I believe parts of the Bible. I believe the red letters. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't. Because you can't do what Jesus said you should do without believing that he is the sacrifice for your sin, without being born again. Uh, It just doesn't work that way. You can't just take some of what Jesus said or even all of what Jesus said. You have to take the whole thing. Jesus said, hey, I come in the volume of the book. The whole book is about me, not just the red letters, guys. And so it's a reminder of who he is. Having seven horns and ten, uh, excuse me, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, that last phrase lets you know that this is a symbolism. While we take the revelation of Jesus Christ literally, doesn't mean it never uses figurative language, and it's telling us here that it is figurative. He doesn't have horns on his head. Seven is the number of completion. Horns, symbolic of authority. And so we're learning here that Jesus, this lamb, has full and complete and perfect authority. And he doesn't have seven eyes. They represent the seven spirits of God. At least twice already in the Revelation, we've seen that the seven spirits of God is an Old Testament name for God, the Holy Spirit. It comes out of the book of Isaiah. And so if you're a Jew reading this, you would know that they're talking about the Holy Spirit uh, and that this is symbolic. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. On the day of Pentecost, the church received the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. He was sent by Jesus to empower the witness of the church. The Spirit-filled church will be removed from the earth prior to the tribulation. The Spirit will still be active on the earth. Jesus will send him into all the earth again. The world will be totally evangelized during the tribulation. Millions will be saved Most of them will be martyred. When we look at the tribulation, we're going to be pointing out all of the opportunities for mankind to be saved. It is God's last long-suffering with man in bringing judgment upon the planet, saying, get saved. Verse 7, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The right hand, of course, is a symbol of authority and power to carry out uh, what it is that you have been tasked with. Taking the scroll indicates the moment in which power is conferred. It's a breathtaking moment when you see what's happening here. A mere seven years after this moment, Jesus will return and rule the earth for a thousand years. And then immediately following his reign over the earth, the final judgment of non-believers will occur. And then a new heaven and a new earth will be created in which we enjoy unbroken fellowship with God for eternity. We will be in heaven to witness this moment. Unlike John, we will not be weeping because we'll know what is happening having read about it. John wept much. And it means, as I said, he sobbed convulsively. And we should... Think about sobbing convulsively until we remember that it's God in his long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's why he waits. Jesus is building, uh, excuse me, he's busy building his church one day and we believe it's imminent. The father will send the son to retrieve the church from the earth. Then this ceremony in heaven will occur once and for all as Jesus takes the scroll and begins to open its seals for believers It will be the end of the era of weeping. No more tears. It is the Lord's no more tears formula for them that love him. Now, the coming era of worship will begin when you see Jesus take the scroll. Notice in verse 9 where it says, they sang a new song. It will be new in terms of its being introduced at that moment, but it will also mark the beginning of a new era of worship in that this future moment is so incredibly unique. It is the beginning of the end that ushers in eternity, and that's why its importance cannot be overstated. Verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The four living creatures were introduced in chapter 4. They are a variety of angels. Some say seraphim, some say they are cherubim. They seem to have qualities of each, and so more likely they're some other hybrid form of angel. We are the elders. Our attention is drawn to our equipment. We each have a harp, and yes, this is where we get the notion we will all be playing harps in heaven. I'm not sure where the corresponding idea that we will be sitting on clouds comes from. But, you know, Christians are always made fun of as, uh, you know, wearing white robes and sitting on clouds playing harps for all eternity. You might like this. According to Vincent's word studies, the word for harp signifies an instrument unlike a harp, as we ordinarily know it, rather a lute or a guitar Anciently of triangular shape with seven strings afterwards increased to 11 strings. Josephus says it had 10 strings and was played with a plectrum or a small piece of ivory, i.e. a pick. This is a guitar jam, guys, and we will all be guitar heroes. It's going to be awesome. Next time somebody gives you a hard time about guitars in church, you let them know, as far as you can tell, there's no pianos in heaven. There may be pianos in heaven, but they're not really mentioned. But I'll tell you what is mentioned, guitars, 11-string guitars. All right, so we'll have golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In the tabernacle and temple on the earth, there was an altar upon which priests could burn, would burn incense every morning and every evening. It stood just outside the Holy of Holies. Psalm 141 verse 2, let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Perhaps all the prayers of God's saints, maybe from all time, but certainly from the church age, are saved as a kind of incense to be burned at this incredible moment. I'm not saying God doesn't pay attention to prayers, but they're saved so that they can be burned. It's as if God is going to receive them and answer them all right then or at least as the seals are opened, here's what I'm getting at. Jesus taught us to pray, and in what he calls the Lord's Prayer, we are to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is the moment in heaven when that prayer will be fulfilled in earnest. Because Jesus takes the scroll, and as he opens the seals, God's will is done on heaven as it is Uh, according to his will until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's it's pretty exciting what's going on. So you'd be rocking out on your guitar holding bowls of incense. And then verse 9... He sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now, this is sung by the elders. Notice how they describe themselves because it further narrows exactly who they are, proving they are the church. The description eliminates angels. Angels are not redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, nor are they identified with tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. The description also seems to eliminate the nation of Israel, who are God's special chosen nation, because Jews would not be described as coming out of these other people groups. It is the church that is a kingdom of priests who will rule and reign on the future earth with the Lord Only saints from the church age sing this song. The 24 elders represent the church. They are the believers from the day of Pentecost up to the rapture. They represent the church safe in heaven prior to the seven-year tribulation. There in heaven, before the throne, as the Lamb steps forward to begin opening the seals, a new era of worship begins. He says in verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and blessing. An innumerable company surrounds the throne to worship Jesus. They praise him as if victory had already come. The seven years of tribulation and the 1,000 years of the kingdom afterwards are certain to unfold exactly as written in the scroll, so heaven and its occupants can indeed praise him in advance. What is in this scroll is going to happen exactly as it is written. Nothing can change uh, once those seals begin to be opened. Uh, we get the idea from watching television or apocalyptic movies or, you know, these different things that if we will act a certain way, get our act together. The you know, human race is always being told to get its act together. I mean, that is like the sub-theme of every science fiction movie. You need to get your act together or something horrible is going to happen. And, it, it, you know, uh, what, what we're reading about here, these people are saying in heaven around the throne saying, hey, this is the victory. And it's definitely going to happen, and it's definitely going to happen exactly the way that it is pre-written. And that's what's exciting, it, it, you know, to use that word about Revelation 6 through 18, because we see in advance the history of the future earth during the tribulation, and the, I don't even think the sub-theme, but the, a major theme in it is God is reaching out to people to save them. It, it, it's, it's, I guess it's silly to say this, but it's tough love. People don't want to be saved. They want to go on with their lives. And and like lemmings, go over the cliff into eternity without Christ. And the Lord says, my long suffering will only go so far. Now I'm going to crank it up. I'm going to turn it up. There's going to be judgments. It's going to be terrible. But I'm going to tell you where they're coming from and when they're coming so that you can repent and be saved for eternity. It's the grace of God's wrath. Verse 13, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. It all sounds very Narnian, doesn't it? Those of you who read the Chronicles of Narnia, creatures on the earth and under the earth and in the sea. There most definitely will be animals in heaven, you know, when you take questions about the Bible, adults have very different questions than children. Children want to know if there's animals in heaven. They want to know if, you know, Blackie is in heaven basically and stuff. So, they shouldn't ask me about individual animals, but there will be animals in heaven. I'm warning you right now, don't let your kids talk to me about animals in heaven. You've been warned. But uh, there will be animals in heaven, and they might have intelligence and talk. Now, we know there's animals because Jesus is going to return on what? A horse. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. And and then we're going to be on horses as well. Uh, Intelligence, I don't know, but it's interesting to me. It's always been interesting to me. My wife likes to point out that Eve didn't seem to get too freaked out when the serpent started talking to her. And so it could be that it was a normal occurrence. And then there's that episode in the Old Testament where Balaam's donkey starts talking to him. Balaam's on his way to disobey God and he starts beating his donkey. The donkey sees an angel standing in front of him about ready to take Balaam's head off and he starts beating him and the donkey says, What are you doing? Why are you beating me? Haven't I always been a faithful donkey? (laughs) And Balaam starts talking to the donkey, and they have this conversation until God opens his eyes to see the angel. And so, you tell me. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. Twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Some of you have been to very formal events. They have lots of tradition that follow a very definite order of service. They can be very moving. In fact, they are intended to incite strong emotion in you. Not necessarily to make you cry, but to, to show you the gravity of the situation. Maybe a military uh, you know, ceremony, a, sh- uh, a change of command, or a military funeral, these kinds of things. They're just, they're moving, is the word that we use. This amen, followed by falling down, probably in the Eastern tradition, first to the knees, then all the way, brings to a fitting conclusion. Arguably the most moving scene in all the Bible when you think about what hinges on this ceremony in heaven. The end of the suffering of the world as we know it through this seven-year tribulation and the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, the Prince of Peace, to bring a time of peace for a thousand years upon the earth to rule and reign the earth as it should be ruled and reigned and then immediately afterward to usher in eternity it's a solemn amazing moving thrilling insightful scene uh... and we should enter into it that way there is a lot of weeping ahead of us until god wipes away all tears and our lives are all about the joy of worship i can promise you I promise myself, there is pain and suffering ahead in our individual lives, in our national life, in the life of planet Earth. It goes with the territory that has been forfeited to the devil who is a liar and a murderer and a thief. And that's all he wants to do is see people destroyed and uh, ripped off and killed and kept from the kingdom of God. And so... You and I know there's going to be disaster and death until the coming of the Lord. One final comment, weeping will end for us, but for some, weeping will never end. We read of non-believers who are eternally separated from God, who have passed into eternity without knowing Jesus Christ, they will experience what is called weeping and gnashing of teeth. For all eternity, in eternal conscious torment, They will weep and gnash their teeth. We're to be about the business of sharing Christ with others and of showing them that there is a grace of God that leads them to repentance and that God's long suffering is waiting for them to get saved so that we can be together with them in eternity. Charles Spurgeon said this Depend upon it, my hearer, you will never go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. They are all doing it there, and you will have to come to it. He is not a mere man or anything less than God. Worthy indeed is the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.